I never once thought that maybe because they lived in America that their belief systems were changing too. What are my values? What do I really want to do? Time isn't running out. My journey gives me a different perspective on life. Everyone is like that. I kind of feel a little more fearless in chasing music all the way. I want you to learn that there's a difference between speaking poorly about your parents and speaking clearly about things that are affecting you. The fulfillment is not going to come without hard work. You know in your heart kind of who you are. It's the right choice. It's 100% the right choice. When you're they see like those questions. Stay. Stay. Study in There's like a deeper meaning behind all of this. Like it's, it's how you were raised, what you were taught, what you were conditioned to believe. This is the Desi Condition. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Desi Condition. I'm Tonushri. I'm speaking with two very special guests today, my friend Gaurav and my sister Debushri. They are emergency medicine physicians working on the front lines of this pandemic, which by the way is not over um, and we're going to be talking about how COVID has affected communities of color, how there can be discrepancies in the care they receive, uh, especially as it pertains to end-of-life care and racism and health care. All right. Hi, guys. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So can you introduce yourselves? Sure. So I'm Deb. Um, I work as an emergency medicine physician. I'm Gaurav um, in Deb's class. Uh, same year in residency in emergency medicine here in New York City. Cool. So this has obviously been a very stressful few months. Uh, let's start with talking about the patient-doctor relationship during these times. So how has the patient-doctor relationship... Oh my God, did you hear that? <laughs> yeah, I did hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so dramatic. Come here, what are you doing? Oh, oh God, okay. Um, Your poor editing guy. I know. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. Let me start the question over. So how is the patient doctor relationship different in people of color and how has that impacted the relationship during COVID? So I guess I can start with the part about COVID. Um, so basically kind of painting the picture of, of, you know, all the, the PPE, the personal protective equipment that you've been hearing about. Just imagine your provider is uh gowned up in all this with a face mask, face shield, um, a full gown and coming over to you to have a conversation. And sometimes, you know, we had patients placed in these tents that would go around their bed. So we had all these physical barriers in between, uh, between us to, to hamper our communication. And then on top of that, um, you know, specifically for patients of color that wouldn't speak their same languages, you had multiple uh, barriers preventing, you know, effective communication. Yeah, that the physical barrier was definitely a big one. And I mean, sometimes it was like the PPE, they were wearing their own masks. Sometimes they had these oxygen devices that made a ton of noise. Um, and in, in any patient, that would be a big barrier. But then you add on the fact that they speak another language and sometimes they'd speak a dialect that the interpreter phone we have access to doesn't have available. I mean, even a language like Thai at times, which like seems like it's pretty would be pretty common in a place like New York City, um, is really it's limited hours to get even a Thai translator on the phone, um, and so that can really limit our ability to understand what's been going on in that patient's medical history and you know in the last couple of days. 
um, I think to, for me, that was the biggest barrier that I noticed um, mm-hmm. in like the biggest challenge I noticed between my, like in my relationship and my communication with my patients. It's something that exists even pre-COVID, but that's something that got a lot harder during COVID. Did it just get a lot harder because of the, like, um, the surge in the number of patients? Yeah, definitely. That's actually what I was going to mention. It's like the time and, and the setting. So, uh, you know, I distinctly remember the beginning of all this. Um, I got turnover on a number of critically ill patients and being the sole provider for them. And you would go try to set up this um, iPad next to a patient's bedside and wait for the interpreter to come on. And the interpreter had to ask a couple questions regarding, um, you know, the language, the patient's medical information. And by the time all of that was set up and the volume was okay and uh, you would have like another patient come in or um, another more urgent event happen that would draw your attention away and just um, make it really difficult to spend the amount of time continuously with an interpreter uh, with a specific patient. Um, so it'd be very fragmented sort of conversations. Um, and, you know, if you have to get an interpreter every time to start that conversation, it becomes um, a, a significant time constraint which definitely hampered our care for, for these patients. No, I was going to say also just, you know, this was, you know, this was also respiratory illness. So some of the patients who were very sick couldn't speak and you, you know, they couldn't speak more than a couple words or sentences in any language. And, um, you know, we couldn't, they couldn't have visitors and families around. And so that, you know, just kind of added to, to the whole picture of how difficult it was. So do you think that there are any solutions that, or any steps that hospitals can take to alleviate this? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just staffing and having the resources available to um, spend the time needed to talk with the family that's still at home. Um, it, we just needed more people there whose sole role was to obtain that collateral, collateral information to help us set up that interpreter so it wasn't the medical provider that was spending the five minutes um, getting the iPad over and setting all this up. And, and you know, after a while, we did have that support and that helped a lot. We had people in the emergency room who were just there to call family members to give them updates. Um, but, you know, that, didn't, that wasn't put in place until a few weeks into the pandemic. Yeah, it was definitely tough to see that particular resource barrier play out in real life. It's tough to say what hospitals could have done differently because some of the stuff, you know, specifically around staffing and resources is a general problem in New York City ERs in general. But I think the takeaway and what Gore was pointing out is that this was an extra barrier for patients of color. Like many other things during the pandemic, you know, we just uncovered disparities that we already knew about. And this was something that that large segments of the population did not have to deal with. Okay, I see. What else um, in terms of cultural barriers? Yeah, I mean, the the communication piece, the language piece is uh, the literal one. But I think there's also, you know, an added component of distrust in the medical system or, you know, just the way uh, different populations or different patient populations interact with the medical system can make it even more challenging. African-Americans, for example, for centuries, they've been a subject of like various experiments, like you think about the Tuskegee trials, um, like you know, Henrietta Lacks, um, these were examples of black bodies that were used for experimentation to quote unquote advance medicine. And I mean, it's just like a combination of 
those and many other unknown ways in which African-Americans have interacted with the medical system. There, you know, you get a generational distrust that then gets passed down century over century. And that distrust in the medical community, you know, definitely translates to the patient-doctor relationship. And during a worldwide pandemic, when you see how people that look like you and live around you are dying more than others, you, you know, that can't not impact the way in which you interact with your doctor when you arrive at the hospital. I think the data on this will take some time to come and I don't have that, but I imagine that, you know, that can definitely impact our relationship. Definitely. And then it translates into when you're having the conversations about end of life and goals of care, um, if you're coming from a community that's been taken advantage of and you're presented with these options that may seem like you're getting less care, um, you, you know, families might be less re- receptive to those options just because there's this assumption that the, you know, your family member will be receiving inferior care to someone that's not, you know, not white or doesn't have other sort of uh, differences and whether it comes to religion or disability or whatever else it is. So those conversations have a, have a very different context to them than um, in a conversation with, uh, with, with white families. You sort of see that play out when you think about the ways in which different communities think about organ donation. Something that I've heard amongst communities of color is the this fear around be, you know, preliminarily saying that you're okay with donating your organs. There's this fear that this might lead to your like not getting the best medical care because another person's life will be prioritized over yours and you can imagine a situation where if someone has this like fear at the back of their mind even if if it's like subconscious fear they have this like kind of relationship or assumed relationship with the medical field um that can very much complicate those end of life conversations Um, And you have to wonder where those fears come from, but then also like how it impacts your um, interaction with those patients and their families. So one thing I've been thinking about is whether the power dynamic between uh, patients and doctors is kind of different in um, between different cultures. Like I think that, for example, like these people might have just have like a lot more respect for their doctors and hold them to like a higher pedestal. Whereas uh, a more Western way, I think, of seeing doctors or providers in general is is more of like a collaborative relationship and more of like service. Yeah. And then you know, so we're we're taught to, to bring up things like shared decision making and then, you know, the context of COVID that basically comes down to end of life decision making on whether or not um, if someone gets sick enough to have a breathing tube placed, if that's something that the family would want. And it's difficult to translate this whole concept of shared decision making to, you know, cultures where um, that's, that's never really been a thing. You defer all decision making to your doctor. And, and uh, so, you know, we would, we would try to try to do that and bring it up. But the, the responses that at least I would get would be, well, you're the doctor. What do you mean? You're asking me if my loved one should get dialysis or not. It's it's up to you. And it sounds like if this is an option that can save them, then you should try to do it. And it's, you know, with that sort of background, it's it's harder to have these conversations because there's no real expectation that it's going to be an equal playing field between you and and uh, the family of the patient when it comes to these really difficult decisions that, you know, like we talked about, we have 
we have very limited time to discuss with our patients. Um, and then we're going from culture to culture and we have to adapt to their own expectations and trust that they've had or have or have not had with the medical community. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I agree with everything Gaurav is saying. I think the tricky thing about it in the emergency department is that we have very few, we have minutes to do something that sometimes can take days upstairs. So, I mean, there's sometimes these conversations will happen over several days where like doctors kind of spend the time to figure out what a patient's value systems are and what they really would want out of their last few hours or days of their mm -hmm. life. And they can kind of like really use that information to figure out what the patient will want. Whereas for us, it ends up being a very binary conversation. It's like, hey, do you want all efforts to be made to extend your life? Or do you want to pass in a more natural way? And that's such a tough question to ask someone when, you know, they haven't even, they haven't thought of it. They haven't thought of that question. And, you know, they might not like see, they might not visualize life and death in, on those, in those terms. And so I think a lot gets lost in that process, in that conversation, especially when we have those conversations as quickly as we often have to. That's so interesting. So yeah, I, I guess like you don't see patients until they're like, I mean, they're in in emergency care, right? Like there's an emergency. So like you'll, you won't see patients for like days or weeks on end. You will see them for a shorter amount of time. Right. We have to build this trust with, you know, absolute strangers in the first 15 to 20 minutes of their presentation when they're coming in as sick as people were coming in during the pandemic. Um, so, you know, you're calling these family members as a stranger and saying, you know, your family members very close to passing. Would you want us to do chest compressions and put in a breathing tube? And we had a lot of biases going into these conversations because we're standing there in the emergency room surrounded by, you know, countless number of patients that are all sort of on this precipice. And we're, we're thinking about that patient that's next to the one that we're talking to that maybe is younger, or maybe um, looks like us or doesn't look like us. And we're, you know, subconsciously having these biases affect how we're framing um, our conversation about the end of life. So, you know, I remember having a number of conversations with family members of, of more elderly and um, patients with more comorbidities. And, you know, I, I definitely had more, uh, you know, you try to stay unbiased and present all the options as they are, but um, you, you, you think, you know, you can predict who's going to do poorly and who you would think would have a good, you know, chance with the breathing tube and with, sort of extraordinary measures. Um, but you have to do your best to have the family choose. Do you think things like implicit, implicit bias training would be even helpful in those situations? Because I know you're making these like snap decisions, right? I mean, I would like to say it helps. It's, it's, we don't get much of it in our uh, medical training. We, you know, in medical school, we, I think we all get exposed to like one or two sessions about uh, an African-American patient with sickle cell and we're taught to treat their pain, um, you know, take their pain seriously. And, and, and that's like the extent of addressing our, our implicit biases. So like in residency, um, we've had a couple of sessions talking about it, but there's no, there's no true formal training sessions about it. So it's, you know, the way I see it is as, as, as long as you're thinking about it and, and you're, you're bringing up the topic, then that's the very first step in, 
in addressing it. So when you're on shift and you're seeing um, a patient that might be bringing out these biases, you can stop for a second and say, hey, um, you know, this, this patient in front of me that's acting um, in a certain way, would I be, would I, would my decisions and how to treat them be different if they were uh, a different skin color? A lot of times the answer is yes. Like we, we treat, uh, you know, patient that's black or brown and coming in agitated. We're very quick to, you know, reach for medications to, um, put them to sleep and sedate them as opposed to, uh, patients who are non black or brown. So I think it, just having, having a conversation about implicit biases. And then, and then addressing it while you're on shift is the is the first step. It's it's hard to say if the training itself does bear out, but I mean, it we we definitely need to talk about it more. Yeah, and the fact that the fact that that's the case has been borne out in the literature. Yeah, I mean, this one this one story I thought about recently in terms of the way that we believe patients' stories and and believe their pain um is one patient i had recently where um she was hispanic and she was brought in for reported like psychiatric symptoms and she was swimming in the hudson river and some bystander thought she was acting odd and that she was swimming in the hudson river and called the police and the police brought her in as a psych patient i went to go talk to her and she was saying yeah you know i I do this regularly i go swim in the river and you know, she had a couple of, of drinks. So I think that also like biased the police into thinking that she was, you know, on substances and doing this odd thing. Um, but once I got collateral, she was, she was on a team that would swim in the Hudson River. And, you know, a number of people just didn't believe her story, starting from the bystander to the police that were called, um, to the triage people in the ER that um, decided to take away her, her belongings and put her in a special gown to say that this is a person that we're, we're worried about psych symptoms. But as soon as I was able to talk to her sisters, everything was cleared up. And, and you know, we a lot of different encounters sort of happen like this where we don't necessarily trust the story of patients of color and, you know, implicit biases training is one of those it's one of those things that can address this because as you're going through this encounter um you can take a step back and just say you know what what if i just actually believe what the patient is saying and try to delve into that because it's very easy to to not take those extra steps to get the collateral and then you know you go down uh the next few steps which can potentially lead someone to getting hospitalized for psychiatric reasons and um that really didn't exist or could have been avoided yeah, and that that piece about not believing patients of color, I think that that piece has definitely been borne out in the literature. I mean, you know, there's data showing that black men get diagnosed later with heart attacks than white men. What is sorry, white men? Um, black women in labor get less. You know, their pain gets taken less seriously um, than white women. That's been shown that we. I mean, specifically around pain, I guess that's been shown that we take that pain less seriously, but therefore it does not at all surprise me that story you're telling of, you know, this Hispanic woman who just was thought to have had a psychiatric illness because she was swimming in the Hudson. The fact that, you know, it took several layers and layers of history taking for that to, you know, for that belief to go away. What about the way that you get to communicate with the families? Are like white families more involved in the medical process than maybe like people of color? Do they get more updates, et cetera? 
Yeah, you know, uh, definitely. And you can go, you can go years of practicing and not realize that you're doing this. You know, I, I remember another situation like halfway through my second year where I was, you know, very distinctly spending more time with this one patient who I had just assumed was um, more health literate. And so I was giving her a ton of updates. And, um, you know, when it came to discharging her, I gave, uh, you know, I, when we discharge patients at one of our sites, like results of their workup don't automatically print out. So you have to like take an extra step and do that. And sometimes, you know, there's issues with printing that stuff out. So it's like an extra, it's, it's not a ton of time, but it's an extra step that you take that you don't normally do with every patient. So I, I just unconsciously did that. I just decided that this patient was going to find her a printout of her results to be useful. Um, and once I realized I was doing that, I, I, tried my best to um, spend a similar amount of time or realize when I was making those assumptions about patients because the opposite goes is, is true too. So you decide that this patient, this patient's family is not health literate enough for you to spend the extra time or to print out that information because you've assumed that they're just not going to benefit from it. And you've assumed that there's no family member of theirs at home that's in the medical profession that could also benefit from it. So, I mean, if you, if you just take a step back during shift and, and see who you're spending more time with, it's, I mean, it's almost a hundred percent true that you're making these assumptions and, and um, you know, in very potentially, I mean, seemingly minor ways, but like potentiating um, healthcare disparities. You guys know that teaching theory of where if you tell a teacher that their kindergartner is like extremely gifted and has like a super high IQ um, and that they're going to excel. And then even if it's not true, the teacher like will devote more resources to that person and kind of elevate them and they will turn out great as a result. I'm butchering the theory, but that that story kind of makes me think of that. I think we as like a like medical professionals as a whole to some extent do that we empower some patients more than others whether often unconsciously subconsciously and it helps those patients it helps kind of like encourage them to be more proactive about their medical care obviously there's a million other factors that are involved as well but even that action is something we can control and does probably um, encourage our like white and like socioeconomically better off patients um, probably encourages it and makes it much easier for them to play like a larger role in, in their own health and I think that's something implicit bias training and cultural competency training things like that could help with not not just noticing the thing the things that we don't do for some patients but the things we do extra for others and what kind of an impact that makes I, I heard a colleague um, say that they specifically give out a work note for patients they are discharging on the day of the planned follow-up appointment to make sure that they are able to take a day off to make that appointment because we, I mean, that's just something that I really never thought about and especially uh, affects the patient population where if you take a day off of work, you don't get to go back to work. Um, as opposed to the better off patients where taking a day off is not a big deal at all. So, I mean, things like that can really plug in your your patients from the ER. And, you know, they don't really get addressed in our training, but they can make a huge difference. 
And that's a big one too, because sometimes patients, our patients might not realize they have to ask for that, or maybe they just don't ask for it, but that's on us to kind of recognize that for them. I think that's a big one that I haven't thought of either. So I think everything that you're saying uh, leads up to the interesting question of, I think, how you feel talking to patients about something like palliative care, um, especially when there are disproportionately more people of color and disproportionately more Black during this time. Um, what, what's been kind of your approach for that? So I think first you have to, to understand that palliative care sort of exists because we in the medical profession are so uncomfortable talking about end of life and code status and, and all these all these things where we want to be the ones where we offer the last ditch efforts to all of our patients and there's a connotation that pivoting towards palliative care is sort of a failure. So w- once we recognize that it's it's not it's not a failure and that many times it's for the best uh, for the patient and the family, um, then that's that's a great starting point. And then you know in the times of, of COVID, for all the reasons that we discussed, it's especially um, difficult. And you know the the part of it that's really tough is that when things are so crazy, um, you know you had you know I had my attending physicians who'd come up to you and and say that this patient, based on my quick evaluation of them, probably won't benefit from. Um, aggressive medical care. And I, you know, oftentimes I would agree, but given the context and the timing of everything that's going on, we wouldn't necessarily have the time or the ability to speak with the family to make sure um, that this is, this is what they would want. And, you know, the patient might be too sick to participate in that discussion. Um, But, you know, palliative care is something where you need you need the time and you need the setting to have these difficult conversations. And we are, you know, we're like FaceTiming in these really loud spaces over different language barriers and, and having these nuanced conversations that unfortunately for us in the ER just comes down to a yes or no question of, would you want us to put a breathing tube in your mother's, uh, in your mother and then connect it to a, to a machine to, to take over? And it becomes this like very blunt um, portrayal that, you know, if we did have the time and the resources, we could spend the time parsing through. But unfortunately, that that was essentially the conversation was, oh, are you a relative? Okay, they're very sick. This is the option or we make her comfortable. And sometimes people would not portray the second option as, you know, in the appropriate light. So it would seem like you're giving it an option of either do everything medically or don't do everything medically. And that's, that's also wrong. So I, I mean, palliative care is its own specialty and you have to take, you know, years of training. So it's, it's very complicated, but you know, in the times of COVID, it just came down to like a couple yes or no questions. Yeah. And I think what was hard about that was it's not like code status was the access by which we were thinking about death, but it's not the access by which patients think about death. I want to cut you off for a second. Can you define what code status means for our listeners? So code status refers to whether or not you're full code or do not resuscitate, do not intubate. So full code meaning 
we intubate you, put a breathing tube down your down your um, into your lungs, um, and you know give you medication to keep your heart pumping. Or the alternative, which is to do neither of those things. That's a very like like a very like high level explanation of it. Um, and you know it's not it's the axis by which we were thinking about death, but it's not necessarily how patients are thinking about it and their families and you know, when we were having these conversations as quickly as, a, as we were, I mean, the three of us having this conversation right now probably think about death in slightly different ways I, or, or vastly different ways. Um, and it's hard to not carry that, that into the conversation with you. It's kind of hard. And we, you know, we do this in general. We, when we ask patients in, even for like lower intensity situations, what they would prefer, we do carry suggestions into the conversation when we give them their choices. And I think that's okay. I think that's okay to an extent to kind of share with the patient what we would do and what, you know, sometimes patients want to hear that. But I think um, when it came to this, you you could sometimes carry too much of it. And that, that I think that could do patients a disservice. It almost feels like there's uh, an unfortunate kind of paternalistic value that comes with it having to just be like all right this or this and um basically like here here's what you do or here's what you don't do and it's it doesn't get to be like um it's only it's only so informed right because there's only so many options to begin with right and then it's it's so so different in different cultures so uh, you know orthodox jewish population to start with a lot of times we just make the assumption that they're going to want all um, medical interventions to be done that we don't even bring up the question. So, you know, I remember one time I, um, you know, I brought it up because the per- the past provider, um, you know, we it was the assumption was made that this family would want everything to be done for their patient. And, you know, I got, once I did bring it up and have that conversation, it actually was slightly different than we all assumed based on just who they were and their religion. So, you know, having some sort of training going into these conversations based on, they're not necessarily assumptions on their religion or, or culture, but just a better understanding and a better way to have these nuanced conversations, because we do have to acknowledge that there's hugely different contexts um, that we're going into these conversations with, and that sometimes having those assumptions are, are are very detrimental to starting that conversation, and we just don't get enough of that training and understanding. Um, and then you know, you go into the COVID times where your timing is so constricted that the nuances are just completely gone. That's interesting. I've actually I've had a similar interaction with an Orthodox Jewish patient where, you know, we kind of assumed, I mean, I still had the conversation with him because we, um, you know, but we almost thought it was going to be a routine conversation for the sake of having a conversation that it would be just sort of routine. And he actually surprised us by telling us that he did not want to be resuscitated or intubated, um, which just goes to show how we had entered that conversation, like how, you know, how, how heavy our biases were entering that conversation. Yeah. I mean, being in the ER, you have like, by, by the nature of it, you have to make assumptions and you have to rely on your type one thinking and your pattern recognition just to get through your shift. 
But at the same time, you have to know when to pause and realize that one of the assumptions, one of the patterns that you think you're recognizing is uh, needs a second look at. Absolutely. You just mentioned pattern thinking and type one. Talk more about that. Sure. So, um, so type one and type two thinking, it's, it's really fascinating. There's a ton of research that's gone into this in a number of different fields, uh, including emergency medicine, where um, they both have their benefits. So basically type one thinking is um, what you gain after, uh, you know, experience working in your field. So, um, you know, a patient comes in with, a, they're holding their arm in a certain way, and you've seen this a number of times, and you can identify what fracture they have just by looking at them for a couple of seconds, whereas, um, you know, type two thinking would be um, a more thorough history and physical examination and, and uh, you know, time for, for questioning. And, you know, they, they work together, type one and type two. You can't, there's flaws in relying on one versus the other. So, you know, if I, if we had a COVID shift in the ER and we were only relying on type two thinking, you'd, you wouldn't be able to handle the volume of patients. And um, you just, you'd be so, um, you'd be so stuck on every decision you're making because you're, you're using a part of your mind that's, that needs more information. And just by the nature of working in the ER, we have to uh, accept that there's going to be a lot of information that we don't know. And that's why type one thinking is so, prevalent in what we do. And, and, you know, a lot of times that's, that's great. We can look at a patient and say, wow, this patient is really sick just by looking at them for a few seconds. And that leads us down a path that's, that'll be beneficial for the patient. Um, and then, you know, on the flip side, there's a lot of situations where, um, you know, like I mentioned before, if there's an agitated young African American patient in triage, um, your type one thinking goes down this path, um, that might spend less time in like verbal de-escalation versus um, getting security and saying, you know, this person needs to be restrained. So um, that's basically the, the background of type one, type two thinking. That's fascinating. I think I need to incorporate that into my everyday vocab. I like that. The other example that I sometimes think about is, so let's say you're at um, like the Rockefeller Christmas tree and you're with your significant other and you want to get a picture of the two of you and you take out your phone and you look around the crowd and you're trying to figure out who you're going to give your phone to and ask to take a picture. So this is this is all like type one thinking, right? You're just sort of mm-hmm. scanning the crowd. You're not putting a ton of thought into who you're going to select, but there's a ton of biases that come up. Are you going to pick someone of color? Are you going to pick someone elderly who you think won't be able to function, you know, figure out how to use your phone? And then eventually your, your brain kind of like selects someone and, and without you consciously going through that thought process. And that's, that's type one. That's a good analogy. I think that makes a lot of sense and I can see why that would definitely be a problem in, in the emergency room. So the, so the word that comes up in my mind when I think about that is unlearning. I think um, just trying to unlearn biases is so hard as an adult because, like, I don't think our brains have evolved to 
to unlearn anything about our environments, right? Like we, it is very recently in human history that our environments have changed so much that we are now like, you know, having to adapt and having to learn new things. But um, historically, like that hasn't really happened. We don't have to learn new things about our, around, about our surroundings. And so we just don't. Um, and so unlearning is like you could almost say it's like against human nature right to to have to unlearn stuff and so unlearning biases is like you know just this huge problem um and it obviously comes up in medicine too um but you know i mean i have a more positive outlook on it too despite everything that i just said i think i mean because we do have the ability to learn right like just because we can't unlearn something doesn't mean we can't learn as well so I don't know how how do you how do you guys feel about that like are you hopeful that things like implicit uh, bias training or cultural sensitivity training um, if they're done like a lot and repeatedly that like it can eventually kind of seep into this type one um, thinking that we're talking about are you asking whether like unlearning the unlearned biases or sorry the absence of biases can end up in our type one thinking yeah it's a fascinating question. I hope so. I think like type two thinking, I think the answer is yes for like type two thinking, but type two thinking, it requires so much more thinking, right? Like it requires like extra yeah. steps. And so, but like your, your like instinctual thinking, I don't know. I just wonder if it's something that you can learn or if it's always just your second thought has to be your your unlearned bias. Like, and it's just always going to be like that. I know you guys are not like, you know, like, like these psychologists or anything like that, but I, I wonder what your opinion is. Yeah, maybe we should have made a disclaimer about that. <laughs> <laughs> you can add one in. Um, <laughs> I think for us, um, it's too late. Um, I think it's like a generational thing. Um, it's just so embedded in the way you're brought up that for someone our age it's it's there it's it's there to stay and the way to address it is to um to switch to type two when when you when you think that there's a questionable situation that's coming up um so i i think they're there to to stay but well i was just saying that you can't necessarily do that in like you know if if it's like an overcrowded room like it was for you know covid right I don't know. Maybe like it's a matter of practice. I don't want to like speak for you guys. I obviously like I can't like give you solutions or anything. I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe if you're if you catch yourself enough times doing that type of type one or type two or one and a half thinking, you catch yourself self enough times. Maybe maybe it doesn't go away completely, but you can sort of train yourself out of it a bit. I mean, I also think that there's some types of um, well, and I don't know, Gaurav. I'd be interested to know what you think about this, but. I think some of this type one thinking isn't actually like stuff that we'd been growing up with. So like specifically around like Bengalis in um, one of our hospitals, there's like, there's a host of um, expectations around the Bengali population that aren't learned over like, you know, decades that's learned over a year or two. And so I think that is something we can probably unlearn or just, like never teach you know i think that's something we could that's a place we probably could make a difference in right i mean it's yeah i, I feel like as soon like the first two years of medical school you know it's so 
it's supposedly unbiased and, you know, just learning the facts. And as soon as you step into third year and you're seeing like the practical way medicine runs, it's, you're just overwhelmed by how, how much biases you're seeing from your superiors. And that gets, that seeps down into the way that you eventually start practicing. I mean, there's still terms like, uh, I mean, there's still, you know, I don't even want to repeat the terms, but basically designations on on populations where we assume that um, they're overblowing their pain or um, even the opposite, that they only come to the emergency room when their pain is, is so bad that they're about to um, um, pass away. And these, these are things that are perpetuated. They're not even, um, you know, I, I distinctly remember hearing on a number of occasions from senior residents or attendings, um, basically like dismissals of of pain from patients just based on their ethnicity. So it's it's still something that we deal with every day. And it's 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 one of those things where it's it's uncomfortable as a junior person to um address it with your superiors. But on the flip side now, you know, Deb and I are a little bit more senior residents. So I had this recent case of like a PA in training who was, I was helping him with a patient who's Hispanic and he was, he said that he couldn't get a good physical examination because the patient was in so much pain that when no matter where he, you know, pushed on their belly or their chest, they were crying out in pain. So he basically just dismissed their pain entirely. And, you know, it's a lot easier when you're the senior person to say, hey, look, you can't, you can't do that. Um, you need to take the extra time uh, to figure out exactly what's going on and just not make the assumption that they're, they have a low pain tolerance and, and just leave it at that because that's, I mean, that's terrible for a number of reasons, but, um, you know, that that sort of thinking still gets perpetuated today. And I think that's for, for a number of reasons, like we're just not taught sort of the, the history of how medicine has looked at different populations. And if we had more of an understanding of that, then we could be more cognizant. It's just, there's just a, it's a severe lack of education even now, you know, in, in this age. Yeah. I think sometimes I don't say this with any expertise. I don't know if this is true. This is just a hypothesis, but sometimes I wonder if like certain, like some patients tell us about their pain in the way they do because they're not used to being taken seriously. And so therefore they think they need to like, you know, make it bigger than it might be. But that's not to say that the pain isn't there. It's still very real and probably, you know, bad, but they, um, you know, communicate it in a way that's unlikely because they need to, they feel the need to really communicate it and be heard. And I mean, to me, that's what that communicates when, we get like an, uh, I mean, we see this sometimes. Um, you get a non-English speaking patient who the only like words they can say are that they have a lot of pain and they they just, they kind of keep saying that and they don't really give you a whole lot of other information and it's confusing. But it, I think it's like, I don't know, this is again, totally a hypothesis, but I wonder if it's just a reaction to not being otherwise heard. Yeah, and they also, they want to make sure that the, their provider has all of the information. So when we ask, oh, is there anything else going on? And they say, oh, yeah, you know, I had a cough three weeks ago. You know, for us, we we, we tend to focus on like the more acute things. So we'll, we'll tend to like brush off those complaints and saying like, and think to ourselves, oh, like why, why are they complaining about all these different things? But they, they just want 
their doctor who they maybe you've only seen once in like the last 10 years to know everything about them to make sure that they get the best care. And, you know, that's like a way of thinking that we're not really taught to have. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And there's like a million, I think your hypothesis makes sense, by the way. Um, I mean, from my completely non-medical background, but just because like, there's like a million ways to communicate, right? And language is obviously like our biggest form of communications. But even within language, like, there's still a million ways to communicate even within one language. So I think like your assessment is probably fair that people feel like maybe they need to use more like exaggerated descriptions in order to be taken more seriously. But that doesn't mean it's not serious. It's just, you know, if a white person came in with the same pain, they may not have to describe it with as much language and they would still be taken seriously, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's an interesting point about language too, because I think that that adds another layer of confusion sometimes. I mean, you know, you and I speak Bengali and I like speak Bengali to my patients sometimes. And I too have a hard time understanding, you know, what exactly they're getting at sometimes um, because of the way they are communicating their pain. Okay. They don't literally use the words pain. They, you know, describe it in other ways. And I've uh, I've seen our parents like kind of co- explain, uh, ex- you know, describe medical things in equally confused in you know equally mm-hmm. yeah. confusing ways. Yeah, especially with a language like Bengali, like it's it's just so flowery and like metaphoric and stuff. Excessive, yeah. <laughs> Excessive. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Gora, what you were saying about there's sometimes we get like old Asian women and we just assume they can they can take a ton of pain and like it's meant as a compliment, but it's very, I think it's problematic because I, well, first of all, I wonder how that impacts how we treat their pain. I don't know. Um, But more so just the fact that we think that one subgroup has a high pain tolerance suggests that we think another group has a different pain, pain tolerance. And we're kind of like holding up this group that has a quote unquote great pain tolerance as like examples of how patients like, you know, like an easier to handle patient. And I think that's what I find particularly bothersome about characterizing that. I didn't know that that was a stereotype of for, for Asian women. I've heard that about black oh, yeah. women. I think, I think the world wants you to think about black women. I mean, that's something that like people have said for like centuries that like, Black women have a higher pain tolerance, and they use that as an excuse. Right. I mean, it's just it's just a crazy concept to think about. Yeah, less you get you have lesser doses of pain medications less frequently. This is like one of the best studied things, at least in emergency medicine, when it comes to these biases. And it's just a ridiculous concept to think that just based on your skin color, like your pain tolerance is different, and. But it's it's very it's very prevalent, especially in emergency medicine, where that's just the thinking. And you know, sometimes people can argue, well, okay, so if I'm seeing this Asian elderly Asian woman who's now here with pain, they'll say, oh, so now I'm going to take them more seriously and do more of a workup and provide better care. But I mean, that's it's. You can't, you can't just keep perpetuating these biases and putting everyone in the same table because there's harms of overtesting as well. So, I mean, it's just ridiculous to me that these stereotypes are still acted upon every day. 
And I kind of think we can unlearn them now that I'm thinking about this some more because we kind of start seeing this stuff when we start going into the working in the hospital and stuff. And I think if we were to hear it less, we would learn it less. And I think it, yeah, mm-hmm. like, like what Gaurav saying, like, I think it kind of like, you know, as we enter like more leadership roles in medicine, I think it's up to us to stop saying those things or catch ourselves when we say those things or, you know, backpedal when we say those things. Um, <clears throat> so that it's like just said less and then, you know, third year medical students hear it less and then therefore they don't absorb those ideas. I mean, I think that's a really hard thing to do. I think there's, I mean, maybe you're right, or maybe our generation is done for, but yeah, there's I mean, there's just not enough active fighting back, you know, on these yeah. concepts. There's it's really like, oh, let's do one session this year, and we've covered it, and that's that's about it. Um, and that yeah. you know, it's not like a part of our core curriculum like it should be because it affects like almost every decision you make with every patient. So, yeah, I mean, I wonder if all this like um the last couple weeks like you know conversations around like george floyd's death and like black lives matter like all the protests and everything like there's been a lot of like you know it used to be something that organizations and corporations and companies like didn't really talk about but all these like big companies and stuff are releasing statements about it now like and it's it's you know it's kind of like entering like the corporate you know headspace now and so I think, I I mean, I hope something to come out of all this is that we will start thinking about it more and more and we will start just having these conversations more and more. That was going to be my question for you. It's like, how how do you feel like the medical community has been talking about or dealing with the eruption of the BLM protests and have there been like that you're aware of any meetings about this or anything like that? Yeah, I I mean, the medical community, it's it's hard for us to talk about these things affecting our patient care because we don't want to be the ones that are part of the problem. Like we're supposed to be this, you know, dignified profession. Um, and, you know, when we're not taught about the history of medicine, it's, there's a, there's this missing sort of piece of education that contributes to the way things are still perpetuated. Like, you know, Deb mentioned before, I mean, the famous ones are like the Tuskegee trials, but even when it comes to medical school admissions and who were allowed to be doctors, like basically you just had to be a white man and you were admitted to medical school. And like, what have we done to um, increase uh, underrepresented minorities in, in medicine? Like really not much. The, the statistics are haven't changed much from like 1960 to, to now. And, you know, there's a number of things that go into that. But is that true that it hasn't changed? Yeah. No, it is, it is true. It hasn't changed much. I mean, like the number of, um, you might have to cut this because I'm not sure if it's true or not, but like the number of <laughs> black um, medical graduates is, it's something like 400 every year out of like the many thousands. Like it's a, it's an abysmal percentage and that really hasn't changed much. That's insane. Yeah. I didn't wow. know that. I mean, Yale, like not that long ago, had a policy where it would admit one African-American student every other year. So what? if you decided to apply that year, just you got to wait another year. Like it's, and this stuff was going on not that long ago. Oh my God, that's wow. jarring. So when it comes to the medical community addressing Black Lives Matter, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, the momentum right now is in the form of like protests. We had a white coats for Black Lives, uh, a number of different marches. Um, but it, it comes down to like the, 
the day-to-day, like how do we recruit medical students? How do we make it less difficult to financially overcome the burdens um, to get into medical school and just have the idea that you don't have to be financially well off or a certain skin color to even consider the the career? Because you know, right now, even you know, a lot of even a lot of the the people we have that are of underrepresented minorities, they still come out come from like a financially well off background. So like their parents are, are are well off, and you know that's that was the one extra step to help them get into the field. So like we we don't truly have the economic diversity that we uh, need to have as well. So I, I mean, there's there's a lot of like practical steps, and you know we can talk about how NYU's offered free tuition too because they have a lot of thoughts on that wait was that for the med school yeah for med school it's covered wow as of like i think two years ago right yeah i completely forgot about that is that is that for everyone for everyone regardless of yeah your financial background wow how's that i mean i don't know if you know anything about that um what are the effects that it's had the last couple of years yeah I mean, I think it's a little bit too early now, but it's like, is it when you have an institution that already has so much money and then does this for potentially um, not so great intentions in terms of just being a publicity stunt and to get even more applicants and become even more prestigious versus actually helping um, okay. underrepresented minorities get into the profession. So like, is would it have been more better use of money to uh, to have like other medical schools, state colleges, state universities, or um, have this sort of program as opposed to a, a school that's already prestigious and, you know, has the ability to offer something like this. But I, I think, you know, looking at it in a positive way, I would say if other medical schools um, look at this as an example and something that um, at some point down the road becomes a standard where if you're not offering free tuition, then you're you're not going to be competitive, and and that's a that's a good thing. That's really interesting. Just because like I'm nowhere near the medical field at all, I don't think about it at all. Like I didn't think of it as potentially a publicity stunt, but I mean, I think you're right. Like I'm 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 definitely gonna like sit and think about that a little more. Yeah, it's like if you, I think Malcolm Gladwell had like a podcast on if you give uh, this. This donor gave a hundred million dollars to uh, it was like Rowan University in South Jersey, and so he like went into a discussion on you know all these donors that give money back to their Ivy League alma maters and and how much good does that really good do as opposed to um, donating to a lesser known school and then how how that can bring a number of people out of poverty or, or advance socioeconomic status um, and get more value for the dollar. But uh, yeah, I mean it's. It's a complicated subject for sure. Yeah. So it's been an hour now. I want to start wrapping this up, but I wanted to ask both of you if there's any like kind of closing thoughts or like, you know, questions that I just haven't asked you about any of this. So what I want to end on a more positive note. Um, so yeah, like Teb was saying, you know, hopefully this momentum um, carries into change in the medical field and it becomes easier to talk about implicit biases and how medicine is just one of the many institutions that um, has systemic racism as a problem that needs to be addressed. What about you, Deb? What do you think? 
By the way, it's so weird to call you Deb. <laughs> I bet. I'm like, oh, Didi. <laughs> Which is, like, yeah, translates to sister, I guess. Um, yeah. And I also don't call her Tanushi or Thonoshri. So that's I like don't I like don't even want to answer you when you call me that. I'm like, who is this talking to me? This is the stranger talking to me. <laughs> um, closing thoughts. I mean, I I think there's, you know, I think there's a lot of ways in which, you know, we know COVID has disproportionately affected people of color and we're going to learn more and more about that as that research is being done. I think money talks and I think the fact that we are spending more time like as institutions and effort and money into thinking about institutionalized racism and thinking about disparities, whether it's by doing that research or thinking about recruitment um, or, you know, thinking about what it is that's like making it hard for black and Hispanic patients to matriculate to medical schools, whatever that is I think the more time and effort we're spending on that as like institutions gives me some hope that will that we're moving in the right direction. I think it's funny because we actually started this conversation talking about health disparities around dying specifically. Um, mm-hmm. And then we ended up on this topic probably because that's just kind of been on our minds because of everything that's happening in the country slash world. Yeah. But I, but it's all related. Yeah, I mean, it took a natural turn, and I think this is something that's on everybody's mind right now. So it's it's super relevant, and I'm glad that this conversation went where it went. I think that this was a very productive conversation. I definitely learned a lot, like stuff that I had never would have thought about in the medical field. So um, I just want to say thank you for being on the show to both of you. And how can people reach you if they have any questions or like comments or just anything they want to say about this topic? Yeah, you can definitely um, add my email, like the show comments. Same. Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, your emails will be in the show description. Thanks for hosting this. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having us. So that's the end of the episode. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. If you have any questions or comments, like I said, uh, there will be info in the episode description you can also reach out to me on instagram and facebook at the desi condition or via email at the desi condition at gmail.com you can also tweet at me at tdc podcast underscore if you're listening on a platform in which you can leave ratings and reviews please consider doing so and tell all your friends about this podcast thank you so much and i will talk to you next time